Thank you for listening to our Truth in Life podcast. This season, we will survey the Bible's unfolding story of redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, every book points to Christ and edifies His church. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. So we're going to dive right in in just a second. Um, Genesis in one session, that's our goal for this morning. Actually, I already met one of my goals, which is to get this put into presentation mode before Apple blasts my screen time notification up here, which I don't use this iPad anymore, and I don't really think I want to see what David French's screen time was, but (laughs) you guys get those on Sunday morning? Yeah, okay. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the start to this year. I pray that every class meeting this morning would be filled with your spirit and that we would learn and apply and love your word more because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to say a few things that are very, very obvious. In fact, I'm a little nervous about teaching Genesis in one week. When you guys, I'm looking around, I know most of you have read Genesis. Maybe every single person, a whole bunch of you probably know about as much about Genesis as I do. So we're going we're gonna to do an overview, like we said last week, this is an overview survey. We're going we're gonna to breeze through this overview very quickly. Um, my, one of my other goals each week is to present an outline. Did you grab a handout on your way in? The handout has the outline. I'm a pretty firm believer that if you are able to take a step back from any material, whether it's Bible or could be anything, any material, and organize it in your mind, you get a framework. Now when you dig in and study it, you have compartments to put that information. And I think, at least for me, the way my brain works, um, it sticks more. So I'm planning, I don't know what the other teachers will do in the other classes that you'll come to um, next month, but I plan to keep the outlines very, very simple and short because I think it's more likely to stick. Now, look at that outline. Um, I'll have it up on the overhead in a minute um, while I kind of lead us through the progression of the book and then we'll finish lord willing we'll finish each week with some application and talking about how what does this have to do with jesus what does this have to do with the church what does this have to do with us specifically personally that sort of thing that's that's my approach so maybe it's helpful for you to know where i'm coming from and where i'm planning to head with this so Like I said, I'm going to state many things that are obvious. This is the book of beginnings. Genesis means beginnings, beginnings or origins. So we're starting at the very, very beginning, literally the beginning, the beginning of time. So um, the the first five books taken as a whole, what do we... I want to get you guys involved in some ways. What do we call the first five books? The Pentateuch. What did you see, Leanne? Okay. Um, okay. We typically, yeah. Pentateuch, law. Um, what else? Who's the author? Moses. Moses. How could Moses write about 
the days of creation when he wasn't there? Okay, God showed him. There was a long oral tradition, too. Yeah, okay. What else? Long oral tradition is what was said. Does that, in your mind, does that present a problem that Moses was the author? I mean, I could write a biography about George Washington, right? Yeah, there was oral tradition, things were written down. Um, and it wasn't, in some ways, it wasn't that far, he wasn't that far removed. Now, in terms of number of years, yeah, way removed, but I have a graph that I think might be helpful that I'll show in a minute to demonstrate that. Okay, uh, Moses is the author, we're starting at the very beginning. It covers a pretty long time period, so over 2,000 years. We think about 2,200 years are covered between creation and the death of Joseph. That's how the book ends, with the death of Joseph. So over 2,000 years, probably about 2,200 years covered. That's way longer than, than other books of the Bible, right? You'll come to... You'll come to books in the other modules of this class where it's very short, sometimes weeks. So 2,200 years written by Genesis. We're starting at the beginning. Now here's, let me introduce the big idea that I want to communicate today. And then we'll develop this throughout the rest of the hour. Almost all of God's revelation is here in Genesis in seed form. It's all here. The doctrines, redemption, sin, judgment, just about every theme you'll find in the rest of Scripture is here in some form. So we'll develop that. We'll keep coming back to that. I might just leave this up for a couple of minutes. I don't have anything specific to say about this chart. It will become, I think, more important to you guys. All the all the modules are planning to use this, and it's really helpful when you get into that area here. But I guess the only thing I'll say about it is what we're doing covers that section. Okay, There are a lot of books in the Old Testament, and we have one book covering this span right here. So we're covering a lot of time. Make sense? Any thoughts, questions yet? Okay, let's dive in. So you, you have your outline in front of you. I am dividing this up um, into two main sections, the whole book of Genesis into two main sections. Events, okay, it's kind of convenient that it's four events, and then the second is also four, four leaders, four men, four people. Okay, so four events, four people. Um, it starts at the days of creation. We don't have time to go through all of them, but um, it's clear that God created the world with his word in the span of six days. Um, whether you insist on a literal 24-hour six days, that's not the purpose of this class, but it's six days, and he did it. Um, by his words. We know from Hebrews that, that we can't, we don't necessarily try to prove that from science, the, the six-day creation that's 
fascinating. I know some of you uh, have read a lot more about that than I have. But Hebrews 11 tells us that it's by faith that we understand that the worlds were formed or framed by the Word of God. So God created the universe, all the intricacies of the plants and the animals and all the stuff, all that beautiful stuff, along with the heavens, all the planets, everything terrestrial, that was all created by God and done by, by His voice. Human beings are the high point of God's creative work. We're, we alone bear the image of God. We're the only ones capable of relationship with God, fellowship with God. He gave us dominion. He told us to fill the earth and subdue it. We are set apart um, in very, very significant ways. That's an understatement. Uh, from all the rest of creation. So in six days he created everything, but he, he is very specific about how we are different and set apart from all of the rest of creation. So we're made to have fellowship with God and we bear the image of God. He gave only one restriction. You guys know that and they failed very quickly, which leads us to the second event, the fall of man. It doesn't take long for Adam and Eve to disobey God, and um, the results are catastrophic. Death enters, decay begins. So not only human death, but everything that goes wrong in creation is a result of that. Um, Satan is introduced, the serpent is introduced. So all of this, all of this is right at the very beginning. Um, things spiral from there very quickly even. Murder is imminent right around the corner. Um, grace and victory are introduced also right there. At the very beginning, sometimes it's called the Proto-Evangelion um, in Genesis 3.15. You guys are familiar with that promise. And grace and victory are both promised there. Not only um, immediately upon sin being introduced and death coming into the world, not only is grace given or offered, but victory is assured also. I want to introduce this graph here. Genealogy plays a huge part in Genesis. Um, throughout the Bible, you know, later on there are long genealogies and I'm not planning to go into detail there, but genealogy plays a significant role right from the very beginning. In particular, uh, the promise of the Redeemer coming is said to come through the line of Seth. So take a look. Can you guys see this okay? That's the best I could do. I just took a picture out of a book and put it up here. But, okay, these numbers right here, those numbers indicate the, how long since the fall. Okay? These numbers here in parentheses are the lifespan of each person noted there. <laughs> anything what what stands out to you when you see it in this form I'm sorry if you can't see it in the back but Randy did tell you not to sit there 
<laughs> what stands out as you look at this, Cheryl? I think it's interesting, you know, we look at, as you read through the book of Genesis, you think there's a long time and you think, oh, well, these people have died much earlier, but they actually were still living. Yeah. Things, you know, I was reading this morning, I realized, well, you know, Isaac was 60 when he had his son. You know, like you just, if you start yeah. piecing time together, mm -hmm. it kind of blows your mind in some way. Yeah, it really does. I love maps and charts and things like that. So this is fascinating to me. Who else? Yeah. I, and I think it's always fascinating how close Noah is to Adam in particular. Like, yeah. So Noah's dad very likely could talk to Adam. So you may be pointing how did Abraham or how did Moses know mm -hmm. the creation or all that happened. Yeah. I wonder how far out geographically they had spread at that point. You know, but yeah, just the the Adam or uh, okay. So if they they give a dotted line here, this dotted line is the death of Adam. So Noah was the first one to not be on the earth at the same time as Adam. I just that's fascinating. I think. I don't know if he had met Adam, maybe. It's, it's entirely possible. Methuselah died with That's an interesting point, too. It does look that way, doesn't it? Hmm. What did she say? Methuselah died in the flood. I don't know. Yeah. I'm, okay, so keep looking at that. It's interesting. I'm going to keep talking and moving, though. So the, the, as I said, the promise of the Messiah comes through the line of Seth. So this genealogy becomes very important as we move not only through Genesis, but down through history and through the Bible. Okay, so sin has entered the world, there's promise of Messiah, victory is declared to, to be on the horizon, but things get worse. The effects of sin continue. In fact, it gets so bad that the Lord says he was sorry that he made man on the earth. And there was one man who stood out in the eyes of the Lord, Noah, who it says found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He, he warned of judgment. He was a godly man. Before there was a lot of communication, before there was scripture written down, before there was God calling Abraham and, and all of this revelation that, that came that we'll get to in a few minutes. This is early. This is Noah. This kind of thing wasn't happening all the time. Yet Noah... Uh, was a preacher of righteousness and was a godly man. So Noah, Noah heard from the Lord, warned of judgment. No one listened, and you guys know how that turned out. Every living creature was destroyed except those on the ark. Not only all the humans, but all of the creatures that weren't on the ark were destroyed. Catastrophic worldwide flood. Um, again, though, always followed by grace. So the Noahic covenant follows right after that, the promise through the rainbow and the covenant. The covenant was made with creation. We call it the Noahic covenant, but it was a covenant with all of creation, not only with Noah. And so grace is right there again. So we see that theme start to, to develop. 
And, and right after that, we have the second messianic prophecy, the first one being Genesis 3.15. The second one um, comes here, and it says that the Messiah will come through Shem, one of Noah's sons. So we'll, we'll come back to him in a minute, too. Uh, the fourth event in our outline is the Tower of Babel. I, I don't think my entire childhood growing up, I, think, I don't think I understood the significance of this story. It was just a story to me on the flannel graph in Sunday school. Um, but this is a, a big deal, especially when you, when you think about the structure of Genesis being four events, four leaders. This is one of those events that God chose to record in Genesis. You know, we're covering 2,200 years, and this is one of the stories that made the cut. So it's a big deal. Uh, we're told that the tower was built on a plain in the land of Shinar. It's, it symbolizes godless arrogance. I guess that's a really short way to summarize. This tower that they built um, symbolizes godless arrogance. God had said what to people? What was their dominion mandate that it's often called? What were they told, what were people told to do? Adam and then also Noah and his sons after. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? So not only have kids, but fill the earth. I don't know, I went a long time without thinking of the significance of that. Fill the earth, not just have kids, but spread out. Take dominion, not only over your little area here, but spread out, go everywhere. So what did they do? What was wrong with, with what they did in building this tower? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what the, I'm not saying, you know, I'm sure there are people who make application and say we shouldn't live in cities or whatever. That's not what I'm, what I'm saying. But they were told to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And instead, it seems like a deliberate attempt on their part through this construction project, whose top was the heavens. This was an effort to not be scattered over the face of the earth. So what did God do? It's so simple in a way, but amazing and had life-altering effects for everybody who, came, who comes after. He confused their language. So now they're working on this project and just presumably all of a sudden they can't understand each other and they can't get their work done. So the tower project comes to an end prematurely. I wonder at what phase of development it was abandoned. How big was this tower? It's, there's so many mind-boggling mind things in Genesis. It's fascinating to think about. So God made it so that they couldn't understand each other. So what did they have to do? Now they needed to spread out, which is what they were told to do in the first place. Look at what effect this has had on the entire world since then. This is why we have tribes and tongues and people and races and languages. And it, it not instantly, but in, in very quick order, scattered people over the, over the known world. So it's an act of judgment and it's because of sin, but it's also a beautiful 
in it, there's a beautiful prediction about the Messiah bringing nations together and redeeming the world, too. So these themes, as I said at the beginning, it's all here in Genesis. One of the main themes of Scripture, one part of redemption, is that all the nations will come to serve the Lord. The Tower of Babel played a huge role in that. So it makes the, the cut in Genesis of one of these four events. So between these four events, creation, the fall of man, um, the flood, and the Tower of Babel, we have everything here. We're taught that we were made for relationship with God. We're taught about sin, taught about judgment, races, tribes, tongues, and redemption for all. Uh, that's all in the first part of the book. That's just in chapters 1 through 11. The rest of the book after that are these people, these leaders. So at this point, Genesis zooms in and shows us that redemption started with a particular people. I think that's the overarching theme of the second part. So the first part is a zoomed out big picture view of these events that set the stage for everything else. The second part of the book zooms in and shows us that redemption starts with a particular people. And from Exodus on, the Lord is known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So these are the patriarchs, and then Joseph as well, but the patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we get a close look at these, at these men. There's another, I think, fascinating graphic. You can look at that while I talk. Abraham. The line of Shem brings us to Terah who was the father of Abraham. Terah was an idolater. His oldest son is Abram. Abraham was a fascinating guy. Um, he was the first one to be called a Hebrew. That literally means one from beyond. So God called Abram from beyond and claimed him and made promises to him. So he's the first one to be called a Hebrew and God called him to travel from beyond, called him to travel about a thousand miles from Ur to Haran and ultimately to Canaan. His call included promises of personal blessing, promises of offspring, um, many, many offspring. He was promised a great name. He was told that he would be a blessing to the whole earth. He would be a blessing to the whole earth. There was promise of land. That came later, though, so I'm going to save that for a, a moment from now. So it, God called him out of a land from beyond, told him to, to travel all this way, and promised him personal blessing, offspring, a great name, and that he would be a blessing to the whole earth. He was also promised an heir. And as he got older and he didn't see this fulfilled and his wife uh, points lacked faith also, uh, they took matters into their own hands with Hagar in this misguided attempt to fulfill the promise of an heir. The promises that he was given were repeated several times, including after the, the episode of the sacrifice of Isaac or the binding of Isaac and 
that situation, um, which was a successful test of obedience. But the promises are repeated to him several times. He was told that his descendants would be as the stars of heaven or the sand on the beach, which in one sense was a repeat of that proto-evangelion that we talked about from Genesis 3. But now Abram is marked out as the particular channel that that would come through. So again, in some ways, Genesis is like a, a funnel. And with, with Abram, we're starting to see specifics about how this would work out. There's a ton more, obviously, that can be said about Abram. It occupies, I didn't add it up, but many, many chapters in Genesis. But we'll move on from there. Do, does anybody want to, you've had a minute to look at this chart. Does anything stand out about this one? Yeah, that's interesting, right? Remember the lifespans are these numbers in parentheses. I don't know what to make of that. I mean, I grew up being taught that after the f that it was the result of the flood that shortened lifespans. I, the Bible doesn't tell us that, but it does. It doesn't go down immediately, though. And I always wonder, well, why wouldn't it go down immediately? I don't know. It could very well be a result of the flood. But Shem, Shem lived 500 years more. They are doing studies on that, and they're showing that, um, that uh, warming and cooling, it takes about two to 400 years for the oceans that release the CO2 to mm -hmm. warm and heat the earth. Uh, okay. And they think that's why, I mean, secular scientists think that's why yeah. ages dropped after that. Not to mention it was an enclosed system before Noah, mm -hmm. greenhouse. They're making fun of him, saying, it's going to rain. They're going, what do you mean it's going to rain? It's 90% humidity. We live in a greenhouse. We have all the water we want. And then, boom, the floods break open. And that's why the rainbow is designed, because you didn't see rainbows when you didn't have water in the area. You had humidity. Mm -hmm. So God actually changed the ecosystem of the earth after the flood. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of symbolic, both physically, you know, too. Like, you're living now in this system of cumulus clouds, evaporation, CO2 goes up out of the oceans, rainbows in the sky. Mm -hmm. so I think it's more than just, oh, pretty rainbow, it's a promise. No, it's a promise that says, I will never do something net catastrophic and change the way the ecosystem of the world works mm -hmm. in judgment. And, and that's the promise that Noah also took out of the boat as well. Yeah, it's fascinating. The whole thing is fascinating. Yeah, one thing that stood out to me is that Shem lived 500 years after the flood. 500 years of multiplying and and. It, what now else? He saw he was still living when Isaac was living. That's eleven generations. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You know that'd be some family picture. I mean, <laughs> look at Abraham when he came on the scenes. I won't be able to draw a great vertical line, but see where that puts him. All the people that he would have had the chance to know. Do we know in the tower? I think we know pretty close. I don't know, but people know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have so so many data points in Scripture. You know, I. Well, when you see this, and you, your first question was about Moses, how did he know? You know, like. You have that many generations that were actually living at the same time. 
you can see how they would talk to mm -hmm. you. know, like, oh, I'm going to go ask my great, 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 grandpa. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? Got first-hand knowledge. So. Yeah. I know. It's a good point to, know, to point out that think about how much you learn in 20 years from the time you're 20 to the time you're 40. Mm -hmm. Now multiply that by 100. Mm -hmm. Think about the knowledge that, you know, certain things that we look back on, how do they figure that out or how do they know that? Or it's because you have, you know, 800 years of experience. Yeah, and it just and gets it, exponential. The people you know and the experiences you've had. Mm -hmm. fish tails and they exaggerate but God kept it straight and isn't that yeah, we know by faith that God did preserve that, the, the oral tradition, and gave it to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's a, a great point. We don't, as Christians, this isn't a theology class. We could spend a lot of time talking about that, but um, we believe that it was preserved and given to us perfectly. All right, I could look at this kind of stuff for a while. I think it's fascinating. Let's go back to the outline though. Okay, so again, lots more to say about Abraham, Abram, Abraham. He was the first Hebrew and God called him. So we're seeing how God's promise of a redeemer is following a specific path now. So his son, the son of the promise was Isaac. Isaac was this long-awaited son. His name means laughter because his parents laughed at hearing from the Lord about this. So he, he was named Isaac because of that. Um, he did not have a great relationship with his half-brother Ishmael. Ishmael was the son of Hagar, and um, there, were, there were issues there. Um, he and his wife, Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, have twin sons, Jacob and Esau. His family is no doubt well aware of the promises made to grandfather Abraham, right? As we saw in the previous chart, look how many generations overlapped. Well, this was just two generations from Jacob to, to Abraham. So the family is well aware of the promise, but God loved Jacob and hated Esau. So we start with Abraham, we go to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, Esau is not part of this. God loved Jacob, hated Esau. So Jacob received his father's blessing. He did it by fraud with the help of his mom, and then he had to flee the area. He fled for his life because Esau was angry about this. Um, Isaac did live to see Jacob return to the land prosperous, financially prosperous, prosperous with a large family. God had blessed him. So lots of details are found in Genesis about, about those years. But I think it's interesting to note that Isaac did live to see Jacob return. So the land is, is beginning to show up over and over as a as a major theme here from there we go to to jacob jacob means deceiver this did mark him from from birth into adulthood he seemed to be a peaceful guy who loved being a shepherd in contrast to his brother esau who was fiery impulsive quick-tempered 
In the process of fleeing, after the blessing incident, the Lord appeared to Jacob and reiterated the promise, the promise given to Abraham. He reiterated it to Jacob. So Jacob arrives in Padan Aram, and the deceiver becomes deceived. He's deceived in the situation with his wife, with his wages, over and over, by Laban and Laban's sons. Um, his father-in-law, Laban, became increasingly ill ill-disposed toward Jacob and told him to leave and go back to the land of promise. So he fled, but he's going back to the land, and God has reiterated the promise to him, which includes the promise of that land being theirs. Uh, the turning point, I would say the turning point of Jacob's life happens at Peniel, where he's humbled by the angel, and he turns from craftiness and deceit and relies upon God. Lots more family drama, tension between wives, Dinah, Reuben, losing and finding Joseph. All great stories you should read and reread. Um, but it ends with Jacob dying in Egypt. So not the land of promise. He prophesies over all of his sons and he bypasses Reuben. So we see genealogy continuing to play a part here. Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob. Jacob wasn't the firstborn son either, but Esau's out, so it's Jacob. Jacob passed over Reuben, who was the firstborn, passed over Simeon, passed over Levi, and gave the promise to Judah. Most of you, many of you probably know that Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. So he passed over those older sons and made Judah the son that, from whom the, the, the heir, the ultimate heir, Jesus would come. So you might expect that the fourth person here would be Judah, but it's actually Joseph. Genesis doesn't give us a lot of detail about Judah. It gives us a lot of detail about Joseph. So it's interesting that we turn our attention here and that Joseph is the fourth person highlighted. Joseph is the favored son. Judah was significant, but Joseph was the favored son, in large part due to the family drama that I mentioned earlier. His brothers are jealous of him. They, they sell him. He ends up in Egypt. He finds favor with Pharaoh and ultimately saves his entire family. But the book ends with Joseph's death, and they're all in Egypt. They're not in the Promised Land. Very interesting end to the book. So w once Abram is on the scene and he's getting these promises, the land is a huge, huge part of it. But hundreds of years later, it ends with them all in Egypt. Now, Egypt at that point wasn't synonymous with slavery. This had, hadn't happened yet. That'll be next week's topic. But it does end with this foreboding statement about being buried in Egypt. So they're alive and they have God's promises, but things get worse before they get better. And that's how the book ends. So that's more or less my, my summary, quick summary of it. And, and pulling out some points to highlight. But let's spend the rest of the time, the last 10 minutes or so, thinking beyond 
just the, the details, the stories here. There's a lot of Christological significance in this book. You guys know what I mean by Christological? Can somebody help us out? What does that mean? Shadows of Christ. Shadows of Christ, yeah. Salvific too, no. Yeah, I think that's encompassed in it. So, shadows of Christ, um, things that point to Christ, redemptive significance, that sort of thing. That's what we mean by Christological. It's full of that stuff. So, if, from the very beginning, it, the Genesis says, let us make man in our image. What's significant about that? Us. I'm sorry? see the Trinity. Yeah, you see, at the very least, the Father and the Son, but, yeah, I think the whole <coughs> Trinity in there. The Father and the Son are co-creators. And we know that not only from Genesis, but Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, John 1. That's a good way to remember it. If you're looking to understand the Trinity or explain the Trinity to someone, it's all the first chapters. Genesis 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, John 1. Those are, the, I think, the best places to go for that. Um, other Christological things. There are several theophanies. What is a theophany? I feel like I'm just giving you guys a pop quiz, but you've done great so far. What's a theophany? Yeah, Noah. When Christ shows up in the Old Testament. Yes. When, he said when Christ shows up in the Old Testament. Good. So it's the pre-incarnate Son of God appearing physically before the incarnation. Um, no more theophanies now because he is God incarnate. But any time the Son of God appears physically before the incarnation it's known as a theophany so in this book he appears as the angel of the lord he appeared to hagar in chapter 16. we, we know that this is a theophany and not just an average everyday angel because hagar calls him god and moses calls him yahweh he also appeared to jacob the angel of the lord in this um, story at peniel and there he said, I am the God of Bethel. Hosea says, Jacob struggled with God. So we know that that is a theophany also. There, and there are other, other significant things we could say about this, but um, theophanies are important in this book. There are also many types. How is Adam a type of Jesus? A, a type of Jesus, again, again, another pop quiz, I guess, but what, is, what do we mean when we say type? Well, Adam was a representation of all of humanity, and Christ is the better representation. He redeems representation that Adam gave to all of us. That's what mm -hmm. comes from that. As Adam was the representation of man, comes through, but Christ redeems that. Yeah, good. So and for those who couldn't hear that, uh, he, Adam was a type because he was a representative, and Jesus was also our representative. So Adam is the type. There are other types, too. Um, lots of them in this book, actually. 
Um, can you think of any other types that are here? You don't have to think too hard because I think I've put a bunch of them on the handout. Yeah, okay. Good. Um, Romans 5 teaches us that Adam was a type of him who was to come. So Jesus was the second Adam, the last Adam. This incidentally is why we insist on an, a literal interpretation of Genesis. Um, because without a literal interpretation of Genesis, I, don't, I think you lose the literal Jesus and then everything falls apart. So Adam was a type. Adam and Eve are a type of Christ in the church. The flood and the ark is a type of baptism and the church or Jesus both of those. The, the Tower of Babel and the stairway that Jacob dreamt of, I think those are a type of uh, just showing us that God comes down to us. Melchizedek is a type of Christ and we learn a lot about him from not only Genesis but in Hebrews. And then Joseph is a type. Lots of types. Those are significant. I want to I wanna be more explicit about the land though so yeah going on to section B Adam and Eve were driven from their land due to rebellion and sin right so that's the first time that land shows up with significance they were driven from the garden from their land because of sin the promise to Abram included the land of Canaan being given to him and to his descendants forever he only received a small plot of that land during his lifetime, but the promise was there. Um, he had his eyes set on something more distant, something bigger though, didn't he? So this is where the land uh, becomes a much more significant motif in, in Scripture. We know from um, Hebrews 11 that Abram had his eyes set on something more distant, spiritual, and eternal. If we had time, I really wanted to read that, but we don't. So read it on your own. Um, it, it shows us that this idea of land was always more than just the physical land. And that, that happens all over in, in Scripture, where something very physical, very tangible represents something bigger. It doesn't negate the significance of the physical, literal part, but it's still pointing us to something bigger. Same with the other promises made to Abram. The real blessing is a deep personal relationship with God. It's restoration between God and Adam, between God and man. <coughs> so Genesis is full of these physical things that point to something greater. Um, it teaches us, it's all, as I said at the beginning, it's all here in Genesis. Everything else in the Bible, providence, election, sovereign grace, justification by faith um, judgment was given simultaneously with the gracious promise victory is assured these are all themes that come up over and over throughout scripture and they're they're all here which I think is a sign of great just on the surface great literature you know Genesis is great literature in that regard but 
It's much more than that. These are real, true promises for us. So a lot, a lot here. Um, we'll move on to Exodus next week and keep moving at this pace. So any, we have one minute left. Are there any thoughts or questions in conclusion? Okay, let's pray. Ed, would you close in prayer? Thank you for listening to Truth and Life. If you enjoyed the series, please subscribe. And remember, from Genesis to Revelation, every book is truth to live by.